0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So, if you have Bibles, please take them out and turn with me to Romans um, chapter one. We'll be reading verses one through seven this morning. Romans chapter one. And before we read the text, let us come before the Lord and pray that the Lord would that He that God would bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we come here this morning by your grace and mercy, and we are grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to come here, that we continue to worship in freedom openly, Lord, declaring our love for you publicly. And Father, we know that there are people around the world that cannot do that, that they have to do so in secret. And Father, we realize what grace it is that we are allowed to bear witness openly And so, Lord, let us do so faithfully. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts as we embark upon this new journey through the book of Romans. Such riches it is in the expression of the gospel, Lord, that, Lord, our hearts would be open to receive the truths that are in there, Lord. The truth about who you are, the truth about who we are, and the truth about what you've done for us in spite of who we are. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make our hearts ready for this word and that you would use it to transform us more and more into the image of your Son. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, if I get my notes to move. And it reads, the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, through whom we have received a grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The late Charles Hodge once wrote, The gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. And it is so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. The gospel, the good news, perhaps the most important truth in all of existence, the truth that a holy, righteous, and just God who needs nothing from us, would make a way to have a relationship, an intimate relationship and fellowship with sinful man. What a scandalous, scandalous truth that is. And he did it not because we deserve it. In fact, he did it in spite of the fact that we didn't deserve it. In fact, what we deserved was his justice and his wrath. But he made a way anyway. That is the gospel. It's not just some good news. It is the good news. And it's the best news. It's the news that the greatest problem that you will ever face. I want you to understand that. It is the news that the greatest problem that you will ever face has been solved. It is the news that no matter how much happens, no matter what happens in the world to you, no matter how dark the nights become, no matter how much pain you suffer, that nothing, and I mean nothing, can separate you from the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the good news that the worst that the world can do to you is to take all of your stuff and maybe even take away this temporary life that's going to end anyway. But that the world cannot pry you out of the Father's hands. That the world cannot loosen Jesus' grip upon your Life. And it's not because of your effort. It's not because you're holding on to him. It's because he's holding on to you. It's because of God and what he's already done for you. The gospel is life-giving, life-sustaining, hope-inspiring, and strength-granting. It is the truth that has changed the entire world. It's a truth that's older than the universe itself. The gospel is the greatest expression of who God is in his glory. It reveals his justice. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his sovereignty. It reveals his manifold wisdom. It reveals his unfathomable love. and It reveals his inexhaustible grace. That phrase right there almost always brings me to tears. Inexhaustible grace. And the gospel is so simple that a child can grab hold of it, but vast enough that we would never fully learn all there is to know about it. This gospel is the focus of this brand new series that we're starting on the book of Romans, subtitled The Power of the Gospel. And I just want to be upfront with you. I am... Excited about this new journey that we're about to embark on, because this is one of my absolute favorite subjects, as as you well know. And the letter of the Romans is one of my favorite books. I've been studying the book of Romans for years. All right, and what may surprise you is I began preparation for this sermon series in 2017. I was want to begin preparing to teach through this book, but rather than jump right in and actually tackling that through a sermon series, I, I thought I would just go ahead and, and test out the waters in a Bible study that we did on Friday mornings that lasted well over a year. In fact, we began this Bible study February 3rd, 2017. Four years, seven months, and 26 days ago. And I taught through Romans in 58 different lessons and it was an in-depth exegetical bible study and in preparation for that i studied the text in english and also the original languages i studied the grammar and i read several different commentaries and articles and i listened to more sermons than i care to remember on this particular book and and since that time i've continued to study this text and, and now i'm even reading additional commentaries on romans in fact uh, one of my deacons was in my office one day, and, and he saw a book on First Timothy. And he says, "Oh, you got a whole book on First Timothy?" I said, "I've got five books on First Timothy." I said, "You should see how many books I have on Romans." Right? But I continue to learn as I continue to study this after all these years. And uh, I had somebody ask me this morning, said, "So, what do you think? Two years, three years to get through this?" I have no idea. All I know is that we'll we'll get through it when we get through it, right? But uh, my aim is to help you. My aim for this is to help you walk through the gospel, I mean, for the, through the book of Romans. Um, but I want to do so in a way that helps you to see the glorious, multifaceted beauty of the of the gospel. And in, love, in, in, in light of that, I want you to fall in love more with Jesus as a result of that. Um, because he is the central character of the gospel. And if, if some of you here are, you know, don't really know the gospel, haven't actually put your faith in the gospel. I want to clearly make known what the gospel is so that you can make an informed decision and repent and believe as Jesus calls us to do. And so with that, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter one, and we'll begin this journey together. Now, before we jump in and actually read the text, uh, there's a couple things that that we need to know. First of all, Romans is the clearest, most Complete explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us what Christ did in history, and they give us an indication of what it meant. But this letter impacts for us in great detail what the gospel means, the depth of all that was accomplished by Christ through the gospel, and then how we then are to live in light of the gospel. This is the part that we see in the second half of the book of Romans. And so the central theme of this letter is the gospel. Paul is setting out to explain in vivid, living color what the gospel is, what the gospel has done, and the hope that the gospel continues to give. And if we're going to understand what Paul's communicating here about the gospel in this letter, there are a few things we got to keep in mind. And the most important of those is context. You've heard me say it before, and I will say it again until I'm done preaching and the Lord takes me home. Context. Every verse of this book, just like all other books of the Bible, must be read and understood in its original context. And that context includes literary context, cultural context, and historical context. In fact, let me just briefly say a word on those three things. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I think it's a helpful reminder. The first one is the literary context. What we need to realize is Romans is a letter that was written by Paul. It's a letter. It is not poetry it is not a historical narrative, it is not wisdom literature, and it's not apocalyptic literature. It is a personal letter written to a church, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the the church in the city of Rome. And like most of Paul's letters, Romans is a theological letter. It is dealing with a theological issue. It's dealing with the theological nature of the gospel. And because of that, he deals with a lot of theological themes. There is a ton of theology packed in this. And just so you know, if I slowed down and addressed it all, we'd be in this letter for 12 years instead of six, like John Piper, right? I'm not going to do that, okay? I'll leave some of it to your imagination let you read. But there's a lot of theological themes here. But then what you'll find out is in the second half of the letters I mentioned, is Paul gets really practical he doesn't just tell us what we need to know and what we need to believe. He then tells us what you need to do and how to live in light of what you believe. And then finally, with respect to the literary context, because it is a letter, this text is a connected whole. Okay? Some people want to approach some of these letters or the book of Romans or other books as if it's just a collection of Proverbs that you can just separate and wrest these things out of its context and, and make them mean what you want them to mean without actually understanding the whole Everything that you read in this letter, verse by verse, every verse that you memorize must be connected to the whole of the letter. These are not disconnected bits and pieces. These verses are interconnected. In fact, Paul, actually, if you read the letter, if you follow his thought, he's going somewhere with his letter. Paul has a main point that he's arguing. And all of the text must be connected and understood in that light. The next thing is cultural context. What we need to come to terms with is that this, bi- this this book was written to first century Jews and Gentiles in the city of Rome. This letter was not written directly to 21st century Americans in Boron, right? And I, and I, and I know that that's, that should be, go without saying, but there's a tendency for us to read the Bible in light of our own cultural context as if it was written directly to us and then our cultural context then makes sense of what's happening here. We need to work at getting clear about what Paul's intentions are when he writes here. If we're going to understand this, we need to understand what was happening culturally at the time and how that affects the meaning of the text. And then there's the historical context. What was happening in history at the time. Paul wrote this letter in 56 AD from Corinth, Um, Right before he went back to Jerusalem and was arrested, 56, by the way, that's 26 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, the first century eyewitness document. Paul had not yet been to Rome at this point, and neither had any other apostle. That's an important point for us to understand. Paul had not visited Rome, and neither had any other apostle at this point of the writing In Romans. In fact, it's most likely, unlike the other churches, the Roman church was probably founded not by an apostle, but it was started by a group of of Roman Jews who became believers in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. If you remember the very first day that the church began, Paul, I mean, Peter preached the sermon, the very first one. Remember the tongues of fire, and everybody's hearing the gospel in their own language, right? Those those Jews who lived in Rome, who were there visiting at Pentecost, then went home and then began the church in, in Rome. They began their, their their Christ community there. And so the church was, as, as was most of the churches at the time, predominantly Jewish when it started. But then in 49 AD, Emperor Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. It's a little detail that we don't really pay attention to. AD 49, Emperor Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, and he banned ethnic Jews from the city. This then caused the church to become primarily Gentile overnight, right? Which means the church went from being very Jewish in its culture to becoming very Gentile in its culture. I mean, here's the thing. You take somebody who's born and raised a a very conservative Baptist, and you go put them in an Assembly of God church. There's a little difference in culture, right? Right? You take somebody who who's from an assembly of God and you put them in a conservative Baptist church, they're like, wait a minute, how come people aren't raising their hands and you know it's it's a little different experience? Well, it's the same thing here. It's a radically, it's a radical different shift. You went from a Jewish church to a gentile church. But then by the time Paul wrote the letter, they had allowed the Jews to come back to Rome and back to their lives. But when they came back, they found that the church, the leadership was predominantly Gentile in culture and it wasn't going to change. And because of this, there was a great deal of tension in the Roman church between those two groups. The Jews one time felt that they were better Christians. Why? Because they were Jewish. They were connected to Jesus through that. But the Gentiles thought they were better Christians because the Jews obviously had been rejected by God, or so they they thought. And so Paul, you know, when we read the letter and he talks about Jews and Gentiles, you can kind of see that tension and how he's trying to help resolve that tension. Now, the last thing I want to mention here. Um, before we jump in here, is why Paul wrote this letter. What was his purpose? The letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote that letter to correct the church there because they were believing a false gospel. right? The letter to the, to the Corinthians, he wrote that to de- deal with egregious sin in the church. And then, as we know, the, he wrote the letter to 1 Timothy to, to encourage Timothy to do his job and bring reformation to the church there. right? Why did Paul write Romans? Well, there are three themes that we just kind of need to keep in mind as we go along. Three reasons. Number one, Paul's writing this letter because he's trying to build a relationship with the Roman church because it's his intention to go further west and he wants to create a new church home in Rome so that he has a base of operation. Number two... He wanted to resolve the tension between Gentiles and Jews in the church and bring unity. If you will read through Paul's letters, you will find unity is an important characteristic of all of his letters. He is always encouraging unity amongst believers. Between slaves and masters, between husbands and wives, between Jews and Gentiles. But number three, most importantly for us. The primary reason he wrote this is he wanted to outline the foundational theology of the gospel for the Roman church. Remember, they didn't have an apostle over them. And you've got to remember, they're getting these teachings from what they heard in, in Pentecost. And then they're building off of their, their already established kind of theology that was from the Old Testament. He was wanting to make sure that they clearly understood the gospel. And that all of the Romans were on the same page as the rest of the Christians around the world. He deliberately and completely lays out in detail the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the Roman church knows exactly what the gospel is and what the gospel does and then how to live in light of the gospel. In fact, Paul gives us the clearest, fullest explanation of the gospel in the entire Bible. In fact, it's been said by many theologians that we just simply wouldn't truly fully understand the gospel were it not for the book of Romans. And so this right here is Paul's masterpiece theological work. This is an exquisite treasure of the gospel of um, of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think John MacArthur uh, wrote a book on this calling calling it The Gospel of God. And so we 2,000 years later greatly benefit from this exposition. And so let me just make you a promise as we get started. As we go through this letter together, if you're in Christ, this book will challenge you it will make you fall more in love with Christ because of his overwhelming grace. And if you're someone who isn't in Christ, you will come to know what the gospel really is. Not what the American culture says that the gospel is, not what atheists think that it is, and not what many theologically anemic churches say that it is. You will learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it really is, and what Christians historically have believed from the beginning and continue to believe all the way up to today. Because this, explanation that paul gives us is crystal clear so turn with me again to romans chapter one and let's just start this journey together romans chapter one and the first thing first thing i want you to notice when you look at those first seven verses what is this the stunning thing that you see about that text is the punctuation now, understand the Greek manuscripts didn't have punctuation, right? And the punctuation we have here best represents scholars' attempts to, to, to represent the structure of the text, right? But when you trace out the flow of thought, what, what, what you notice is, is there's a whole lot of commas in that text. And there's only one period. And where's that at? It's the very end of verse 7. And what does that tell us? It tells us that even though there are seven verses, this is one one long run-on sentence. My kids have accused me of being able to go on and on and on and on, but Paul, I I can't hold a candle to him. This is classic Paul, by the way. If you've read any of his letters, you will see this feature. He starts talking about something, and next thing you know, he interjects something else, and then there's another parenthetical reference, and the next thing you know, the sentence is a paragraph long, which can make interpreting the text a bit of a challenge, right? If you'll even take the time to interpret the text. And and I say that is because if you're like me, you will read the greeting like this, and you'll think, well, this is a lot of flowery language, including verses 8 through 15. And you'll think, well, this is just an extended greeting to the people in Rome, and it really doesn't have anything to do with me, right? There's not anything really theological here or practical value for us today, right? Because the important stuff in Romans, as I would think, doesn't begin to verse 16. What happens in verse 16? Well, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. For me, this has always been where it started, right? By the way, this those two verses is the theme of the, of the Bible, and those are the two verses that actually transformed Martin Luther's heart and that began the Reformation 500 years ago. If you're like me, you begin studying there because that's where the good stuff is, right? But if you're like me, you would be wrong. Because long before we get to verse 16, Paul is going to talk about something Important. He's going to walk us into a theologically rich world and he's going to give us a sneak peek about what the letter is all about. And what you'll realize is that everything that Paul says, even in this run on sentence, is important and points us to the truth of the gospel. Even in his greeting, Paul teaches us about the gospel. In fact, let's take it apart and look at it. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The first thing I want you to notice is how Paul and other people in the old—I mean, in the uh, first century—wrote letters. They they wrote things differently than us. Today we write letters and we say, "Dear so and so, my name is," and we introduce ourselves. Right? We greet them and then we introduce ourselves. Well, in the first century, they didn't do that. They they said, "This is who I am," and then I I greet you. And we see that all the time in Paul's letters. He always introduces himself and then he greets. Right. Well, notice Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm Paul, and I greet you, brothers in Rome. He opens up with an extended introduction of himself. Why do you think he has to do that? Well, the reason is, is, as we talked about, is they had never met Paul. They might have heard about Paul. I'm more than likely probably heard about Paul, but they didn't know Paul. They didn't have a relationship with him. And so Paul begins this letter by explaining who he is and what he does, and the process he's going to summarize for us, the gospel that he preaches the gospel that he will unpack throughout this letter. And so Paul identifies himself by name, and then look how he describes himself. Not Paul, eminent theologian. Paul, with three doctorate degrees from so-and-so university. Paul, greatest evangelist in the entire world. No. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. First thing I want you to, to notice is what Paul says about himself. He calls himself a servant, and it's a word that we're familiar with. But you'd have to understand is this word "servant" does not come from the word that we're familiar with from First Timothy. This word "servant" is not diakonos, which from which we get the word deacon, which means servant. That's not the word that Paul uses here. What he uses is the word doulos. Doulos means something completely different. It means bond servant or slave, not just a servant but a bondservant, someone is in bondage, somebody is, is enslaved. Paul is saying, as I am the slave of the Messiah, Jesus, which by itself is a whole world of theology. I could spend all Sunday packing, unpacking just that, right? Because right from the jump, Paul declares that, that, that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what the word Christ means, The word Christ that we say Christ is from Christos, which means Messiah or the Anointed One. Which points, when we hear that word, should point us back to the fact that He is the promised one by God to come into the world to set things right. The one who was to to come into the world and undo the curse of Adam. Right from the jump, Paul declares the good news of who Christ is. And then he says, I am His slave. I'm his bondservant. I'm not just a follower of Christ, right? I'm not just his disciple. I'm not his buddy or his homeboy. Right? I am his slave. We should not overlook that. This is Paul, right? I mean, if you if, if there's anybody that's ever been anybody in Christianity, it's Paul. And he calls himself a slave. Again, we shouldn't overlook this because in American Christianity, we overemphasize the freedom we have in Christ to the point where we think that we are free of Christ. What we need to realize is to be truly free in Christ is to be his bondservant. Freedom in Christ means to serve him. This is the idea that we need to embrace right up front. Otherwise, we won't understand what Paul is saying when he says things like, Christ is our Lord, or obedience of faith. Our freedom in Christ means that we are free from the penalty of our sin. That we've been freed from the power of sin through sanctification, and that one day we'll be free from the presence of sin in glorification. And we are free from trying to make ourselves right with God by our own efforts and works of the law. But we're not free from Christ because He is our Lord and Master. If we are in Christ, we are His. We are His bondservants or His slaves. And this is how Paul identifies himself. and the the Greek word, in in the Greek speaking people there would have understood the reference here because their culture and their economy was built on this kind of servitude and this kind of relationship. And the Jews would have understood this because they would have considered it an honor to be a slave of God. And so Paul calls himself a slave, and then he says that he was called to be an apostle. Paul identifies himself not simply as a messenger of God, which which is what an apostle meant, but he identifies himself with a select group of early leaders who were specifically and specially commissioned by God during the early church to establish the apostolic teaching. And that teaching would be preserved for us in the word of God for future generations. Paul saw himself as an apostle on the level of Peter, James, and John. He was was the 13th apostle after Matthias, which means he has a special authority to speak to churches and bring correction and discipline. And his words are recorded in the book of Romans as theonustos, or the very breath of God, or God's word. And the reason why I point this out and emphasize this is because in American culture, there are people today who claim to be apostles. In fact, there's a whole group of people called the New Apostolic Reformation that they claim to have divine authority like Paul did. I've heard people say, well, you can't fault people for using the, the term apostle because it just means messenger, representative of God. And, and really, we in Christ, are all, all of us are that. And that is true in that sense, yes. But when people use the title like this, they're using it to establish divine authority as if they have some supernatural ability to speak for God. And what we need to understand and embrace and insist on is there are no new big A apostles. The office of apostle was for a short time during the first century in order to establish the church and the apostolic doctrines that had been handed down to us through the scriptures. And when the last apostle died, which was the apostle John, there were no new apostles after him. And the reason for that is because the revelation of God's plan of redemption was complete in Christ and completed in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are sufficient for us. There are no new apostles, and there's no new binding message from God to the church coming from any person today. There are no new apostles in the sense of a big A apostle, like there is no new prophets, like big P prophets. What I mean by that, there is no new Scriptures being written. There's no new fresh revelation from God that's binding on the church. There's no new prophecies. There's no new visions of what God is doing. And so we must reject anyone who claims the office of apostle or prophet. I had somebody one day pull up on a bicycle, me and Fernando. We're outside talking. And the guy pulls up and he says, hi there, I'm a prophet from God. I go, no, you're not. He says, well, what do you mean? I said, because they're all dead and you're alive. And then he starts to argue with me a little And, and and just after a couple of minutes of going back and forth over Bible verses, next thing you know, he's calling me all kinds of four-letter words. I said, man, I didn't know God's, uh, God's prophets spoke like that. But, but there are, we must reject those who claim to be apostles and prophets. Now understand, all of us are messengers of Christ. And if you want to get technical with the Greek word, little a apostle in that sense... Right? We are all messengers of Christ as we proclaim the gospel. Right? And then when we proclaim the, 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 the word of God, especially during preaching, we are speaking like the prophets do. Because what does a prophet do? He proclaims the word of God. When I herald and proclaim the word of God, I'm doing what a prophet would do. But I would never, I would never presuppose and call myself a prophet or an apostle especially in the authoritative sense that Paul uses the word here. He's referring to himself with a very specific and special office for that time. And notice the phrases that he uses here, the verbs that he uses here when he he talks of this office. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says that he is called and he is set apart and I can spend all Sunday morning on just those two verses, as those, those two phrases, because there's a whole lot of theology there. But, but what we need to understand is he, when he uses these two verbs, he is, he, he's doing so to convey a couple of very important doctrines of the church. That is, number one, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And number two, the doctrine of divine election that God calls and sets apart whom He wills because of His sovereignty. Now, if there are two doctrines that some Christians struggle with as they walk through the book of Romans, it is those two. But hear me. You cannot honestly read through Romans in context and escape these reoccurring themes of God's sovereignty and His divine election of those who God saves and those who He appoints to leadership. It's inescapable. The only way to escape it is to ignore it or just to talk around it. I mean, the word... For called here is from the Greek word that conveys the idea of a divine calling, a calling from God. And it's used in this letter over and over again. In fact, it's used twice more in this text. And this expresses the idea that someone's being summoned by God to an office or to salvation. I mean, mean, think about this. Who is the one who called Paul to be an apostle? Yes, Jesus, God himself. And then the word set apart. Who set him apart? God, God divinely set him apart. Paul uses his expression, set apart, in a way that conveys God's divine sovereignty. And he did the same thing in Galatians chapter 1 where he writes, right? But when he who set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul clearly believes that God is the one who sovereignly selected him for salvation and the role as an apostle. And this expression conjures up the words from the prophet Jeremiah. By the way, he, he gives that allusion, right? In Jeremiah chapter one, verse five, it says, he says, before I was formed, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or set apart you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Paul clearly sees this appointment and salvation as the Greek word expresses a divine appointment. It's the sovereign work of God. God's sovereignty and divine election are foundational themes that run throughout this entire letter. And I will say that you're not going to fully grasp this gospel unless you wrap your head around that understanding. Because as we will see, this letter... We'll come back to this theme over and over again, and Paul will make it clear that salvation is 100% the work of God. And so Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul introduces us to the central theme of the entire letter, the gospel. We will hear that word over and over and over again. The gospel is what, is, that the letter, is what the letter is all about. And what we're going to see here is Paul is going to unpack for us in this little short introduction, a brief theological summary of what the gospel is about. Notice he says he was set apart for the gospel of God. What we need to see here, the first thing we need to understand about the gospel is the gospel is of God. This might seem like a minor point, but it's but it's a major theme. Why? Because it's about God. The entire book of Romans, the entire Bible is about him and the gospel is of God. It is God's gospel. It's not mankind's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. I think we lose sight of this, right? It is God's gospel. The gospel comes from God. It is the good news that He created. And what we need to understand as we think about the sovereignty and divine election is the gospel is not God's response to Israel's failing to accept Jesus as the Messiah, as some Christians believe. The gospel is not plan B. That God, you know, offered Jesus to the Jews and somehow they reject Him and then now we will go plan B with, with the Gentiles. This is this is one of the failings of the early dispensational thought was that that still permeates a lot of modern Christianity. As they try to interpret the Bible through a certain lens, they believe that God's plan A was simply just to save ethnic Israel. That that God's plan has always simply just been about them, but that when but then when uh, they rejected Christ. That somehow God said, okay, that didn't work, so let's go to plan B. And that then through plan B, he extends salvation to the rest of the world. And that, that Gentiles weren't included in the original plan. What we need to understand is that simply not true. As the letter of Galatians makes clear, plan, God's plan A was always to save his people. And his people have been and always will be the elect throughout history, both Jew and Gentile. You see, the Jews thought that they were only the ones to be God's people and could be saved. Because they knew God would save His people. And they thought that they were the only ones who qualified. And that's how they they interpreted the entire Old Testament. But as Paul makes it plain in this letter, and in the letter to the Galatians, is God's people... Abraham's children are not those who are biologically descended from Abraham, but those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Read Galatians, specifically that part where Paul says that about Abraham's descendants are those who have faith, children of the promise. And this was the plan in eternity past. God's gospel was created in eternity past as the covenant of redemption. This includes God's offer and command to Adam in the garden. This included the fall. This included Judas betraying Jesus. This included the Jews' rejection of the Messiah. And it included the grafting in of the Gentiles. The gospel of God's divine plan of redemption was evident all the way through the Old Testament. In fact, Paul even says that. He says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is clearly saying that the gospel that he is preaching is not some new development in history. It is not some new idea, it's not a plan B. The gospel is fully realized in Christ, was promised by God beforehand through his prophets in the Old Testament. The Old Testament bears witness to the gospel. You see, there are people who believe that, that the people in the Old Testament were saved by obeying the law and that, that people today are saved by the gospel of grace, that somehow God's plan has changed over time, which is simply not true. All of God's elect are saved by grace through faith in the gospel, the same gospel, which is promised, which is the promise that God will send somebody to redeem His people that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. God said to the serpent in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promised right after the fall that he would send someone into the world who would crush the skull of the serpent and as a sign of that promise what did God do? He killed an animal to cover them in their shame. A picture of the sacrificial system and the picture of Christ's atoning work. And this is the theme that runs throughout all the Old Testament. This is the theme that underlies all that God has done. From the Exodus to, to God using Joseph to bring, to bring his brothers to to life and salvation, even though they sinned against him, to the promises he made to King David about his offspring and how he'd sit on his throne forever. It has always been throughout the Old Testament about the gospel. Every person in history has been saved by grace through faith in the Messiah. In the Old Testament, people looked forward to the promised one to come by faith. In the New Testament and beyond, we look backwards in history on the promise that was fulfilled by faith. Look what Paul says next in the text. He says that he was set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his son. What Paul makes clear is the gospel is about Christ. The gospel is centered on Jesus and who he is, and what he has done. The gospel is the central theme of Romans in, the gospel is the central theme of Romans and the Bible, and Jesus is the central theme of the entire gospel. It is always all about him. By the way, that's why Jesus can say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is no gospel apart from Christ. The gospel is about him and what he has done and who he is. And Paul briefly gives us a glimpse of who he is. He says, the gospel of God, who which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In this brief section Paul makes several gigantic theological claims about who Jesus is. He is the promised Messiah. Notice the the term son of David. Son of David was used in the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Messiah. Paul says that he is the promised descendant of David that was promised to come into the world and make things right. He is the one, the Christ. Hence the title. Number two, As the son of David, we see that he in his incarnation was fully human. Jesus was fully man, had a full, complete human nature. And this is important for us. This is essential for our faith because our salvation requires somebody must live that perfect life. Someone must keep the covenant of works that was given in the garden. Somebody must keep the law. Someone must be perfectly righteous in order to have fellowship with god by the way those are all things that we couldn't do those are things that we all failed at we all failed by our own choice but we also failed in adam jesus as paul will later say the second adam succeeded where we fell short in his humanity he did for us the things that we couldn't do but also in his humanity because he was perfect he was able to pay our debts Jesus was a man, perfect in righteousness, went to the cross and suffered in his body the torture of his enemies, but more importantly, experienced the full weight of God's wrath upon his sin for us. And he shed his blood to make atonement for us on the cross. And he died in our place. His humanity is essential to our salvation. But so also was his divinity. Paul says concerning the son who was... who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul says not only did Christ come back from the dead, referencing, by the way, the doctrine of his physical bodily resurrection, which is an essential doctrine to us, that Jesus physically, literally came out of the grave, but his resurrection is proof positive that Jesus is the eternal son of God. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And what we need to understand is this word declared in the English just doesn't do justice to what Paul is saying here. The Greek word that he uses here, the root of that word is the same word we get, the root word for our word horizon. We know what a horizon is, right? A horizon is a clear, distinct word. Boundary. It's a line, right? It's a clear definition. We think about the horizon when we look off on the sunset, we know what we're talking about. When we look at a horizon in the west when the sun is setting, we see that clear dividing line. A horizon is is a boundary between the earth and the sky. A horizon is in essence, a boundary, a dividing line between the earth and the heavens. And what Paul is saying is when he says that that Jesus was horizoned, declared to be the Son of God, what he's saying is that the resurrection and his, his perfect life is the clear outlining that we can see that he is the Son of God. When you look off into the west, Look at the horizon and you look at those mountains in the west. You can see the silhouette of those, of those big wind turbines. You can see them turning. They're clearly demarcated in the horizon. It's the same thing that Paul is saying here. By the power of the resurrection in his perfect life, he is marked out clearly seen as the Son of God. It marks out his divine nature. And so in this brief description, Paul says that Jesus is the Messiah. He's fully human, fully divine, resurrected from the dead. But he also says one more thing. He said, the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul rounds out this opening theological discussion about Jesus by making it clear that he is our Lord. Notice this. He doesn't just introduce Jesus as his Savior though he is that, right? He says that he's the Messiah, fully man and fully God, but he is our Lord. This is another foundational thing that's missing from modern day Christianity is the, the truth of Christ's Lordship. In fact, there's a predominant 20th century movement that still exists today that claims that you can make Jesus your Savior, but not your Lord. It's called easy believism, and it's the idea that you can make a profession of faith and receive all of the glorious benefits of the gospel and continue to live in open rebellion to God's law. That somehow you can live like a demon as long as you prayed that prayer, somehow you're heaven bound. That Jesus is your personal Savior, but not your Lord. But somehow that comes after. Understand this. If Jesus is not your Lord, He is not your Savior. I want you to hear me, just, and I'm being very clear about this. If he is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. Jesus' salvation for us and his lordship over us go hand in hand. They're inseparable. This is why Paul calls calls himself a slave of Christ. He, Jesus, is the undisputed Lord of all, as we sang this morning, the Lord of our life. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the resurrected King, is the Lord of all, the owner of all. So Paul says the gospel of God is promised in the Old Testament, is centered on Christ and who He is. But then Paul explains the purpose of the gospel. He says the gospel of God concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among the nations. In this text we see the purpose of the gospel. It is for the sake of His name. Whose name? Jesus' name. And who is Jesus? God in the flesh. You see the purpose of the gospel is the glory of God. That's what it's all about. It's about God in His glory. right? Notice the purpose is not simply to make humans happy. The purpose is not of the gospel is not to make humanity nicer to one another, though many people will say that's really the purpose of Christianity. The purpose of the gospel is not to teach us somehow to love one another. That's a byproduct of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel isn't even to save sinners. Again, that's part of what the gospel is about, but that's not the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is to bring glory to God, to glorify Him. That is the purpose. Why? Because that is always the purpose of everything that God does. And everything that He creates is about His glory. In fact, what does our, our catechism say about the purpose of man, the, the chief end of man? Question number two. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we were created for. We were created to glorify God. We were redeemed to glorify God. And we will, and we will be brought into heaven by his grace for what purpose? To glorify him for eternity. That's the purpose of the entire universe, by the way. And that is the purpose of the gospel, to shine the light of God's glory all over the world, which brings us to the scope of the gospel. Paul says the scope of the gospel is to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake, for, uh, for the sake of his name among the nations. The thing that we realize is the gospel is not some secret society. It is not some, some private faith tradition. Well, it's my private faith tradition. I just kind of keep it to myself, you know. The gospel is not reserved for a select few people like the Jews. The gospel is to be declared and heralded to all of the nations. It's to be spread all over the world. It has been part of God's plan since eternity past to redeem himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The gospel is for all of the nations. But also notice what the gospel produces. It produces obedience of faith. Paul says that he has received a grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith. Now, this is certainly a peculiar expression because, because doesn't Paul say that, that, that he was, you know, that we've been saved by grace? But he says here he was given grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith, not just simply bring about faith. What does he mean by obedience of faith? Well, Paul is not saying that you're saved by obedience, nor is he saying that your faith is the product of obedience. On the contrary, Paul is saying that our faith in the gospel produces obedience. The gospel calls us to repent and exercise faith in Christ and in turn produces in us as a byproduct obedience. And this makes sense in light of what Paul says about Jesus being Lord and him being the slave. You see, the natural byproduct of the gospel in the Christian's life is to obey. Why? Because as we'll see in Romans later on, those who come to faith in Christ have a new nature. They are brand new, they are made new creatures. Their hardened hearts of stone have been changed and transformed into hearts of flesh. By the way, this is what we'll see when we get to Romans 9. The fact that God is the one who transforms our hearts. And with that, this new heart that comes a new nature and new desires. The God that you once hated and rebelled against, you will love and want to obey. The sin that you once loved and held dear, you will despise and begin to turn away from. Those in Christ are radically transformed. And the result of that is a life. Not using your freedom to sin, as Paul addressed, will address later on but rather to use your freedom to glorify God through your obedience. And so the gospel is of God. The gospel is promised in the Old Testament. It is centered on Christ. It is for God's glory. Declared is to be declared throughout the world, and it produces obedience in those who believe and are saved. But the gospel saves those who God seeks to save through His sovereign election. Look what Paul says we apostles have received grace and apostleship to bring <clears throat> about obedience of the faith for the sake of, the, of his name among the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Well, let's just take a quick deep breath here and think about this. Paul uses the same word called again. It's the same one. So when he used before, and he uses it twice in this section, speaking of the Romans, right? And he's speaking about divine God's divine calling. He says the Roman Christians are called to belong to Christ. And they were called to be saints. And the word saint it, itself, right, is a word that means consecrated ones. Or guess what? Set apart ones. And so we see this repeated theme of being called and set apart in this short section. Now, I've read some who will say that this calling that Paul's talking about is just generally a a general call for people to believe in Christ. But the context doesn't support that. And not to mention, Paul's call to be an apostle is not a general call for everyone to be an apostle. It was a specific divine call to Paul. Not to mention the scriptures over and over again bear witness to God's specific effectual calling. As Paul will later speak on in Romans chapter 8. It's one of our favorite verses, right? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For who? For those who are called. Literally, the called. According to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also, what? Called. And those whom he called... He justified, and those who be justified, he also glorified. Paul's talking about God's sovereign work in salvation, which is the idea that Peter repeated, by the way. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 1, verse 10? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make make your calling and election sure. How about Jesus, John chapter 6, verse 44? No one... Who? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, literally drags him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then Paul says to to Timothy in, in the second letter to Timothy, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus when before the ages even began the gospel saves those who God calls now, now hear me you can push back on this if you want to that's okay you can get emotional at the prospect of God's sovereignty and divine election you can grit your teeth you can even get mad and pound your fist on the table and say it's not fair that is okay because that's what I once did many times. I struggled with it too. So understand, struggling with God's sovereignty and divine election doesn't make a person an unbeliever. because you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by perfect theology. Praise the Lord for that, right? But here's the thing. The truth that Paul touches on here at the very beginning of this letter, the calling, right? He calls the Romans... He says that they are called to belong to Christ. No one comes to Christ unless God draws them. He's going to take this truth and reinforce it over and over again. You cannot escape it. If you read Romans front to back and pay attention to what he's saying, you cannot escape what Paul is saying here. Just wait until we get to Romans chapter 9, by the way. By the way, Romans chapter 9 was the chapter that I dealt with and wrestled with. It actually changed And it caused me to just surrender to God's sovereignty. Romans chapter 9 was the chapter that caused me to say, okay, Lord, I don't understand it all. But what I know is what you're saying. And I'm not going to allow myself to to make you in my own image. I'm going to worship you for who you are. And what we'll see in Romans chapter 9 is Paul is going to clearly say that God saves who he wills and he hardens who he wills. And we'll just have to chew on that when we get there. The gospel is a plan and the message and the instrument that he's been using to bring salvation to those whom he calls. But the last thing I want you to realize is the gospel also brings unity among believers. Because notice what he says, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. This is an easy thing for us to read this in English and miss this, right? But this right here, this is an Old Testament expression. This is right of the Old Testament The one that the Jews would have readily understood exactly what Paul is saying here, right? Because who were the ones that were loved by God? God's people, right? And who were the saints? Who were the set apart ones? God's chosen people. And that's exactly how the Jews of old viewed themselves those loved by God and those set apart by God. And many Jews, including some who professed faith in Christ, believed at one time, that the Jews were the only ones that could be saved by God and that they were the only ones loved by God and called to be saints. But here Paul is using this expression of the Romans collectively to a church that is largely Gentile. What What is Paul saying? That those who belong to Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are those that are ones that are loved by God. Theirs are the ones that are set apart by God. Both Jews and Gentiles are Saints, they have been reconciled together in one body, in one family. This is a message that, that we should take out of here to the rest of the world, by the way, because the gospel unites us in Christ for all the differences that we could possibly have amongst us and others in the world is the gospel unites us in Christ. It tears down the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. It tears down the dividing line between slave and master between male and female, even between black and white. It tears down the walls of nationality, ethnicity, and economic status. And those people, we are united into one family, the family of God. Every one of us in this room who profess Christ, we are united for all the differences we might have in background and experience, we are united under one banner, Christ himself, into one body, Christ himself. And that's what Paul, Paul is saying here is the gospel unites us. In fact, notice the greeting here. Again, something else we'll overlook. It says grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was the common greeting for the Greek people, by the way. That was the expression that they would use. And then peace, obviously, was the Jewish shalom, right? That was a greeting of the Jews. And what you see is Paul is taking and adopting this hybrid greeting and expressing unity and also blessing that comes through Jesus Christ. And with that, the Christians experience both overwhelming grace, but also peace with God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so unity gospel brings unity amongst believers. And so Paul in his introduction helps us to see the gospel is the good news that it is of God, was the promise in the Old Testament, is centered on Christ for the glory of God. It's to be declared to all the world, produces obedience, saves those who God calls and brings unity amongst believers. And he says all of that in just the opening Just the opening of Romans. And I want you to know, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff I didn't even get to. There's a whole bunch of stuff I left out. What what treasures await us as we go through this rest of the letter? So with that being said, what do we do with this? Well, here's the thing. When it comes to the gospel, there are only three things that we can do. Number one, know the gospel. Number two, believe the gospel. Number three, proclaim the gospel. We as Christians must know it back and forth. It should be the center point of our life. We should be proclaiming it to ourselves. When you fall down and make a mess of your life, you don't say, hey, I need to get right with God by fixing things. No, you need to remind yourself of where you stand because of what Christ has already done for you. And we need to believe the gospel because that's the only way that we have a relationship with Christ. And then we need to proclaim it. And so let me proclaim for you the gospel again as we have done before and I will do again and again and again. The central, the central figure of the gospel is God. It begins with him. Without, If you don't start there, then you don't have the gospel. The gospel is the fact that God is holy, righteous, and just, in character and nature and eternal, and needs nothing from us. But in his own sovereign will and decree, decided to create the universe, and he did so out of love and grace, and He created us in the process. And He created us specially, different from all of the universe, to have a, re- re- a relationship with Him, to reflect His character. Right? That's what we were created for. That's why all the world is seeking for purpose. Unless you get that purpose right, you will always fail. We were created for a relationship with God, but that relationship was destroyed by our original forefather, Adam, and then by our own will. We Sin against God actively because we want to. We're rebels against God because we want to. As Romans chapter 1 later on says, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And because we were created for a relationship with God, but we rebel against God, then His wrath abides on us. We are rightfully judged and condemned for our sin against God and rightfully deserve the wrath to be poured out on us and spend eternity in punishment and in torment. That's what we rightly deserve. All of us. People always say, well, that's not fair. What's fair is for all of us to be sent to hell. That's what's fair. That's what we deserve. But... What makes it worse is we can't even fix it. We can't do anything about it. You cannot do anything on your own to make yourself right with God. You can't love enough. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't can't rescue enough kittens. You can't feed enough homeless people. You can't be devout enough, faithful enough, spiritual enough. You cannot do it. Why? As, As Isaiah says, our righteousness is but filthy rags before God because everything that we have and do is stained by sin. We cannot make ourselves righteous before God. And so what do we come to? We come finally face-to-face with the facts that we are helpless and hopeless under the condemnation and wrath of God with nothing to redeem us. But then the good news, that God in His grace, overwhelming grace, unmerited favor in His love for us, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, God in the flesh, to do the things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, to live the perfect life that's required, to earn a righteousness that's required, and then to die on the cross to make atonement for our sins, and that then by faith in Him, and Him alone, our sins are given to Him, and His righteousness is given to us as if we're perfect before God. And not only did that happen, but then He... He raised was raised three days later proving that what he promised is true, a historical fact, a historical reality that Jesus Christ came out of the grave proving that if you'll put your faith in him, not only will he make you clean, he'll make you righteous and then give you eternal life. And Jesus said, what you must do is simply this: repent and believe the gospel, repent and believe the gospel. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do, you you don't have to make God love you by your own actions. You just repent and believe the gospel. What does that mean? Repentance and faith are the same action. You turn away from one thing to something else. You turn away from your old life to God. You turn away from your self-righteousness to Christ's righteousness. You put all your hope, all your trust, all that you have for the future on Jesus and Jesus alone. And cry out the Lord, rescue me, save me. And then spend the rest of your life repenting and believing, trusting. And the word tells us that those who do that can have assurance that they are saved. That they have an inheritance in heaven. And that nothing then can separate us from the love of God. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Not that, hey, if you believe in Jesus, he's going to make you rich. What does the word say? What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? God did for us the things we couldn't do so that we can have a hope that can never be shaken. That is the gospel promise of Romans. That's the gospel I'm excited to share with you as we go along through this. And that is the gospel I'll call you to repent and believe. And if you repent and believe that, then go out and share that faith with someone else. We pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.